You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Hi, I'm Julie Larson Brisher, Science and Technology Editor for Meeting Place Magazine. Welcome to Episode 68 of Meeting Pod, where we're talking foreign material prevention with Suzanne Finstadt, Vice President, Food Safety and Quality Assurance, Poultry Division at Tyson Foods. Suzanne leads the Food Safety and Quality Assurance team for the poultry segment of Tyson Foods, one of the world's largest food companies and a recognized leader in protein. In this role, she and her team are responsible for the development and implementation of strategies, policies, and programs designed to ensure regulatory and specification compliance. Suzanne also provides education and technical support to the sales team in managing customer expectations. Her team works collaboratively with the business to identify and mitigate risk to the brand and consistently deliver to expected food safety and quality metrics. Prior to her current role, Suzanne held several positions related to regulatory compliance across the enterprise, including responsibility for food safety and quality initiatives related to contract manufacturers and direct material suppliers. Suzanne is a member of the Network of Executive Women and an executive sponsor of Tyson's Latinx Business Resource Group. She also actively serves as a member of the BRCGS International Advisory Board and is a past co-chair of NAMI's Food Safety and Inspection Affairs Committee. At U.S. Poultry's Poultry Processor Workshop last fall, I had the opportunity to see Suzanne's presentation on foreign material prevention, which shares Tyson's key learnings from the 2019 recall of nearly 12 million pounds of frozen, ready-to-eat chicken strip products. I'm looking forward to chatting with her today about those learnings and the importance of having robust processes in place to ensure that equipment is in good condition for processing. Welcome to Meeting Pod, Suzanne. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to share some of our experiences. All right. Well, let's dive right in then. First, Suzanne, I'd really love to know how you got into a career in the poultry industry and what do you like best about your work? Honestly, it was somewhat by accident. I blame a really charismatic professor that I met during my first semester in animal science at Texas A&M University by the name of Dr. Willie Kruger. Sadly, he's not with us anymore, but he's absolutely responsible for selling me on this path. So next thing you knew, poultry science degree in hand, I went to work raising turkeys for an integrator that was later acquired by a much larger integrator. And less than a year went by before I joined Tyson Foods at one of the processing plants. And then 25 years later, here we are. As far as what I like best about my work, I'd have to say it's a tie between having the opportunity to help feed the world and working with all of the amazing folks I've met along the way. It sounds cliche, I'm sure, but feeding the world is a pretty amazing responsibility. Well, as you know, as I noted in the introduction, you presented several times on the learnings from the 2019 chicken products recall that was linked to extraneous material contamination. So, Suzanne, would you give us a little bit of background on how the problem first manifested and evolved over a 45-day period, and what was unusual about it? You bet. 
First, I want to emphasize we're committed to producing safe, healthy food at Tyson Foods, and we always have been. We have programs, processes, and technology in place covering all aspects of food safety from the farm to our processing facilities and then to the consumer. While the program content evolves over time, the fundamentals of food safety are unchanged. So we'll get into the specifics in a minute, but I thought it important to start here. So let's get to it. We've been very open about what happened in 2019, and we really think there's a great lesson here. It all started with a process improvement idea. I think anyone that utilizes wire belting is accustomed to the phenomenon where a link in the belt breaks and the whole thing snags. This results in a fairly time-consuming repair process that brings the operation to a halt. Well, our operations team wished for a wire belt that wouldn't hang up when it breaks, and lo and behold, we were able to source one. So after obtaining this new wire belt from an approved vendor, we trialed it over a number of weeks at a single plant, and what we found was that the belt was indeed a workhorse. At this point, we installed the belt on multiple lines. So fast forward the calendar a few months, and we found ourselves with two similar consumer complaints. Strangely, these complaints were from the same production date, but different production lines with no shared equipment or ingredients other than the raw chicken. Now, based on the nature of the complaints and the fact that the products in question were battered and breaded, the raw chicken wasn't a reasonable source. So the team at the plant began investigating, but were unable to determine a source. Without having objects in hand, you're really lacking critical information such as size, hardness, etc., all of which are critical details for identification of the material. So at that point, the team agreed to voluntarily recall the production date associated with the complaints. Over the course of the next 45 days, we received other complaints as well as two of the objects from the consumer. This was really the turning point in the investigation because much to our surprise, we were able to match the returned objects to a particular type of wire belting used in the plant. Once that wire belting was identified, the questions really started flowing. So first and most importantly, how is this even possible? You have to understand that the production process in our plants includes and has included metal detection of the finished product for many years. It's a standard process feature. Well, what was the problem with the wire belt? And were you able to determine any issues with the protocols associated with belt inspections and repairs as part of your process controls? The wire belt was constructed of a type of stainless steel that was not detectable by our metal detectors. When we took the objects that were returned by the consumers and passed them through our metal detector, they weren't detected. Even manufacturers will tell you detection technology is not 100% effective. There are many things that influence detection, orientation of the material as it passes through the aperture, salinity of the product, etc., etc., Now, naturally, when we were unable to detect the belt pieces, we went back to our routine metal detector checks. We didn't find any issues whatsoever. The equipment was able to detect the stainless steel standard, as well as the other standards, without fail. The rejection timing was also on point, although that was not believed to be part of the issue at hand. Now, mind you, the goal of metal detection is to detect the smallest ferrous, non-ferrous, or stainless steel object possible. We're talking tiny beads that are typically single millimeters in size, much, much smaller than a wire belt link or even a piece of a wire belt link. So naturally, the next action was to engage the manufacturer to evaluate the equipment and its settings. Again, the equipment was deemed to be functioning as intended and technical skill of our maintenance team in setting up or adjusting the system was affirmed. So again, how are we here? 
I'll tell you how. That belt, although stainless steel was not detectable. You also asked about belt inspections. As you're likely aware, most processing plants have miles and miles of belting. This belting, like all other processing equipment, is inspected not only for cleanliness, but also integrity on a routine basis. If a problem is identified, repair is initiated. The problem here is that belt breakage doesn't happen on a schedule, and when this particular belt breaks, it keeps on going. Remember that I said it was a workhorse. There are a couple of important discoveries to unpack here. First, if the belt breaks and keeps running, how do you know where you are really? How do you know to isolate potentially affected product until you locate the missing pieces? Now let's suppose that you identify the broken belt during one of those routine inspections. What's the repair process? Chances are that if the broken belt is identified during a planned inspection, the documentation does exist. But what if the broken belt's discovered outside of a routine inspection? Who manages the fix and documentation? How do you know it's happening like you think it is? All very good questions. Yeah, it really is. You know, during your presentation, you also talk about these keys to success in various areas. Would you give us a little insight into those learnings, starting with belt management? Sure. Number one, belting is not a consumable, meaning it's tightly controlled. There's no grab and go component where our maintenance team just walks around with spare belting just in case they need it. Instead, it's issued on an as needed basis so that there's a record behind the usage. Number two, everyone is responsible for belt condition. Everyone. Maintenance, of course, but also operations, including the line workers and FSQA. We all own the area where we work. If something's wrong, it's your job to stop the process and tell someone. Number three, process control is the cornerstone of all that we do. We set the process up correctly using the correct tools and parts. Number four, Observations are documented, and this includes inspections, breakages, and repairs. Inspections occur multiple times per shift, not just at setup. These observations have a verification component as well as record review for confirmation that the process is working. Nothing is left to chance. Number five, and this is a big one, training is deliberate because practice makes perfect. We utilize show-and-tell examples and display boards to demonstrate optimal and non-optimal conditions. We job shadow and practice the inspections and repairs because classroom, lecture, and read this and sign here training is not effective without real-world experience. We want all team members engaged in this work to be familiar with the process and the documents because familiarity breeds habit. Right. Well, how about the repair process and keys to success for that? I think the first step is the one most often overlooked, and that is to know the starting point. What is the situation pre-repair? what's there and what's missing. Knowing that prevents all kinds of snipe hunting. This also includes awareness of the tools and parts that are brought to the line to complete the repair. If you don't know precisely what you started with, you can't possibly know what you should end with. While the repair is in progress, you must contain the situation. Ideally, you need to have a designated container to house all of the byproducts of the repair. This would include any and all broken, removed, or extra pieces. Lastly, you want all parties involved in the repair to evaluate the tangible facts to determine success or failure of the repair. To be clear, I'm not measuring success via equipment performance. I'm looking through the food safety lens to determine if all byproducts of the repair and tools used to complete the repair can be reconciled. It's only a success if the tools we took to the floor also leave the floor and not in a product container. 
By the same token, the broken or unused spare parts also need to leave the floor. If you can't find them all, don't assume they went in the drain or were thrown away. Right. That's so true. And finally, you also listed some keys to success related to material standards. Yeah. So here we circle back to the root cause of this whole situation. Know what you're buying. I know that sounds simplistic and I'd say it is, but it really isn't. You might think it's sufficient to simply tell your vendor that you need a stainless steel wire belt. You might even go so far as to tell your vendor how you intend to use the stainless steel wire belt so that they can assist with finding the correct gauge of metal. All of this is important, but I'm here to tell you that it is not enough. Why? Because quality is important and applicable to metals too. Equipment should be fit for purpose. And let me be clear, I'm not just talking about sanitary or hygienic design. Do you know the composition of the material? How about the quality or grade, purity of the material? Is there a specification for the material? Is it in the contract or agreement? How does the vendor demonstrate compliance with their advertised standards? What you really need is knowledge or assurances about the composition of the belting. If you know what you're really getting, you can make accurate risk-based decisions about how to operate your process. Yeah, and why do you suggest that meat and poultry processors quote, go treasure hunting, unquote. And do you have any overall advice for industry in terms of bolstering their foreign material prevention strategies based on these learnings from 2019? I sure do. The School of Hard Knocks is an excellent teacher. Aside from what I've already shared in terms of material standards, I think it's also an important reminder to the industry that our certified ferrous, non-ferrous, and stainless steel standards used to test metal detection sensitivity and rejection timing are not necessarily representative of the foreign object potential in our processes. We discovered that there's real utility in making sure you can detect what you actually have in your processing plan. For us, this looks like the creation of our own detection standards to be used as a complement to the certified standards provided by the manufacturers. It's about eliminating blind spots. We know that equipment will wear down or wear out. So when this happens and we have a foreign object risk in our process, we want to know that we can detect it. Hence the treasure hunt. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Suzanne, and for sharing these expert insights with our Meeting Pod listeners. And listeners, you can learn more about Tyson Foods' commitment to food safety, quality, and sustainability at www.tysonfoods.com. There you can also find out more about how Tyson innovates continually to make protein more sustainable, tailor food for everywhere it's available, and raise the world's expectations for how much good food can do. Also, be sure to check out U.S. Poultry's website at www.uspoultry.org, where you can get more information about upcoming poultry processor workshops and other meetings of interest to the poultry industry. You might also have the opportunity to see Suzanne's fully illustrated presentation on the topic we discussed in this episode of Meeting Pod. And I also invite you to head over to MeaningPlace.com and access our technical article archives and podcasts to get more smart manufacturing advice first published in our poultry processor and other science and technology focused newsletters. Thanks again, Suzanne, for fitting your our meeting pod chat into your schedule today. And I really appreciate it. And I hope I see this presentation again. That's how good it is. <laughs> Uh, Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to tell our story. Thanks for spending time with Meeting Pod today. 
Remember to tune in on Mondays and get the inside track on the people and processes that power the protein supply. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Meeting Place and Altmate magazines on social media or visit our websites at meetingplace.com and alt-meet.net.